Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in financial services, providing advice to a whole variety of clients, as well as how to better handle your own finances, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a financial advisor who has spent over 20 years helping others to navigate the many financial obstacles that life throws at us. But before I introduce you to Dominique Henderson, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Dominique who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dominique Henderson, the founder of DJH Capital Management, the financial advisory firm that he launched in 2016 in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. DJH Capital specializes in creating financial roadmaps for its clients in order to help them achieve better stability and comfort with their money. DJH also specializes in cash flow management, tax shelters, and tax-free income investment programs. Dom has been working in the financial industry since 1998 and he actually knew from a super young age that this is what he wanted to do with his life when he was in elementary school. And I have got to hear this story. Dom actually wrote a financial mission statement. I had no idea what a mission statement was, let alone a financial mission statement, probably still don't, which was to help people to win their money. Dominique is also the founder of the Jumpstart Coaching Lab, which is working to change the face of the financial services industry by equipping the financial professional of tomorrow to serve their ideal client. He also hosts a terrific podcast called Conversations with Financial Professionals, where he digs into the next generation of financial advice. Dom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I am, Andrew. How are you today? I am awesome. I am just polishing off my first 
cup of coffee. What do you guys brew in the Henderson household? Anything very strong because I like my coffee like my red wine. (laughs) Oh, you and me both. I am all about full body. Yes, yes, definitely. Right. Do you? But no, I've a, I've a, we uh, typically will grind something that comes local in the stores down here. I mean, I, and I like flavored coffee too. So, but as long as it's, I can't be medium body. It has to be dark roast or stronger. <laughs> a man after my own heart. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So Dom, I was thinking we could kick things off by helping our listeners wrap their brains around what all is included when we say you are in the financial services industry? What does the financial services industry include? Yeah, this is a really great question. I, for a while, I struggled with this because I think it was just what I was exposed to because the financial services industry as a marketing machine spends billions of dollars every year on indoctrinating people on what the message they want to see. And I'm not going to say that's all bad. I I will say, though, it is skewed. So in a perfect world, I think we would be taught from a financial literacy standpoint as early as education about or or elementary school is is what's on this continuum. So this is something I borrowed from friends in the industry. But imagine the financial advice continuum going from stage zero all the way to stage 15, if you will. And so stage zero is financial illiteracy. Stage 15 is, I got this together, I'm good to go. And so what I would say most of the American population probably sits, and even the global population probably sits somewhere between stage zero and 12. But in contrast, to set this context, the industry, the machine, markets probably to the 13, 14, and 15, because those people have money. And the reality is a lot of us have not really gotten to that stage. So ideally, what would happen is we would start that education process and all the different intersections in life, student loan debt, buying your first house, car, blah, 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 starting your family, all these things. You would come to a person along that continuum, maybe a coach or someone, a financial planner, and you would say to them, these are the things I want to do in life in these particular increments. And that person would help you organize a strategy or a plan to achieve those goals. That's essentially what financial services in my perfect world should be, because I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. They're looking for a guide, some counsel around the things that are near and dear to them that allow them to use their money to do those things. Right. And so sometimes you need some advice around that. Excellent. So if I'm a young listener right now and I'm thinking I might want to get into this industry, Mm -hmm. what are the silos or the different types of companies and opportunities that await me from that marketing standpoint that the big financial services industry has been pushing? What are my options? Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of what we call biz development or practice building sales roles, if you will, because that's no practice can operate without clients. So we can't, we have to acknowledge that. (laughs) So a lot of the focus is there. I think there's some, it's not to say that you can't do this young. It's just my experience that some of the things that you experience, let's call it when you're adulting, mid twenties and beyond really shape your persona as a salesperson. For instance, a lot of good salespeople tell stories about experience. 
how much experience do you have when you first come out of school, right? So you're really just trying to get your footing. So there's a lot of those roles. It's not to say they can't be done, but I, I would highly suggest maybe interning your sophomore, junior, senior year with some of these companies to kind of understand how that role, if you fit into that role and how that role would benefit you. Then we have, just to make this really simple into two, two pockets, then we have the, the, the client support. So there's all kinds of things that happen in client support from compliance, making sure you don't say the wrong thing while you're in front of people, because there's a big whole regulations around that. We have marketing, social media being digitally astute, if you will. We have the actual client relationship support. So this means Mr. and Mrs. Smith come in, you might not talk to them. The founder of the firm probably does. But after they leave, they have all these things to do. They have new accounts to open. They have money to deposit. The founder probably goes and talks to the next couple or the next family that he serves, not open up the accounts. So you have those type of roles. So there's a lot that you can do. And I, I again, advocate doing your homework. Inside my community, I have 10 tips to jumpstart your financial services career. The first tip I give is to do your research, do your homework. So it's not going to be too much different than what Andrew is telling you, or maybe your parents are telling you in that if you want to get into this, what you're going to need to do is you're going to have to do your requisite amount of homework and due diligence to see where you might fit in best. So if we could pull back, that's great advice in terms of like the types of roles to be looking for. But could you paint an even broader picture, Dom, of all the different types of companies that exist? So you've mm. got your, for example, you've got your investment banks, you've got your merchant banks, you've got your tax, I don't even know, but yeah. could you just give us those different buckets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll name some names and I won't step on toes while I'm doing it. <laughs> so okay. we have... Let me think about how I want to go into this matrix of stuff. So let's not worry about terms as much. So let's just get some names that people are familiar with. So you, you walk into Bank of America or Chase, you know, you might have an account there to your point, merchant banks. And behind the desk is probably a teller. A lot of stuff is done electronically, but at least when I was coming up, there was a teller. And then you might have like a, a branch manager, or a relationship manager that tells you about, yeah, hey, you can have this type of account or you can have this type of CD. This is financial services too. Sometimes these people have to be licensed. Sometimes these people don't. I don't know if we want to go into a whole licensing thing, but the point is, is some jobs inside this industry will require you to pass different types of tests in order to demonstrate your acumen and actually to get your fingerprints into the system so they can track you throughout your whole life. <laughs> and what about other types like hedge funds? Because you've worked at a hedge yes. fund. Yep. And what about real estate? finance and yep. some other, what, what else would you add? Yeah. So there? you got, you got mortgage brokerage stuff. You have private money management or family office management through hedge funds. There's just so many different ways that I think you can access the markets. I, like I like to break it down to this. You and I, and your audience, listening audience, we have knowledge and we have skills. We exchange that human capital for financial capital by going to a job to give us a paycheck. That paycheck, we have cash. We can spend it. We can do whatever. If we choose to invest some of it, we usually go do that in a market. And with that investment, we get an asset that we hope gives us a return. That's the only reason to invest. The people that we're naming in all these different spheres, they serve that market. That's the best way to kind of look at that. And there's all different ways to intersect on that market, whether it be a hedge fund, whether it be a, a UBS or a Merrill Lynch working on Wall Street. There's so many different facets. It could be that just you want to get your paycheck from your job and go stack it in a deposit account at, uh, at Chase or Wells Fargo or something. 
So I think it goes back to that point that we made earlier, which is start doing your research. One of the things is you might have a college professor or you may have a mentor that you can meet on LinkedIn and start to ask them about, hey, I see you work in this part of financial services. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that? And that's the best way to kind of learn the industry to see all the different ways that you can fit in depending on what you like to do and what you're good at. Excellent. So you currently run your own firm as a financial advisor. Who are your typical clients and what do you do for them? So I have a, what is called a registered investment advisory firm. So what I have, in order to establish this firm, you have to have a minimum amount of designations and or experience. And then you go register, depending on how big you are, you, you register in your state or at the SEC level. So just to have context for the type of firm I run, typically I'm dealing with retail investors. I have some, some business owner clients, but basically people are coming to me that are trying to set themselves up for the ideal retirement, whatever that looks like, you know, work optional, whatever, that their money is going to align with the way that they want to see their life when they leave getting that paycheck, from getting that paycheck. And I like Chris Rock's definition of wealth, which is having options. So I like to give my clients options. It may be during their working career, they're saving X amount and they're putting away this and they're watching their the bottom line when it comes to taxes, you know, all that normal stuff. And then it can actually be, well, what are you doing that for? It could be that they really, really want to retire early so that they can spend more time with their aging parents or maybe with their adult children. There's a lot of different things that people want. And I think one of the most important things that I'm privileged to do with working with my clients, Andrea, is to ask them in a perfect world, what would they do if money wasn't an object? Like, what are they aspiring to? What dreams that they'd have to put on hold as life happened that they would may want to revisit before their time on this earth is over? And to me, to be able to facilitate that is one of the greatest gifts, which is, again, I, I'm, a, I'm old school. So financial service at the root of that means to serve. That means you're a servant. So you are a facilitator to somebody doing something that they want to do. And you get benefits for doing that also. But the primary thing there is service. Is part of your job, Dom, staying on top of the news, reading the Wall Street Journal, watching MSNBC, and in general, just keeping your finger on the pulse of how financial markets are doing? Or what would you say you do to best advise your clients? More so than that, because I've had stints in my career where that was like a mandate. <laughs> and now that I'm my own boss, not so much more. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Carl Richards, who writes for the New York Times, and he calls it the, the financial pornography network. <laughs> I don't disagree with him at all. It's just so much noise versus signal. But what I will say is, I am, if I was to characterize one of the things that I enjoy the most, as well as I think what my clients pay me to do is to be that second set of eyes, to be that, that counsel that can say, hey, I'm Dom, I'm thinking about purchasing this, or I'm thinking about taking this job over here, or I'm thinking, like what I tell my clients, I was like, think about me as this quarterback so that whenever money intersects your life, which is very often that we're running up against this plan. And if, and if you can't make sense of running up against the plan, then let's get on a, let's have a talk about it. So we can make sure some of the, this is a game of, it's very much like golf where it's a game of errors. The less errors you make, 
the better your score. Financial services, or specifically from the client standpoint, is a game of errors. If you reduce the amount of stupid decisions or stupid tax you have to pay, then you end up with a better life and probably a bigger pile of money. (laughs) So take us into a typical day for you, Dom. What does it look like? If we bring in my consulting business, Jumpstart, which I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that, I try to split my time 50-50, not on any particular day, but I I tend to rise pretty early. And that's just- early? Well, today was four because I had to get my workout in and everything else before I left for almost an hour commute to my church for a Bible study. So that's on my Tuesdays. But I would say any any day is probably between five and six because I like to try to get my workout in. That's just to get the juices going. And I like to spend some quiet time before I take client meetings. So I am a big fan of how Elrod, I, I, the Miracle Morning I did for years until I developed my own. And that's just this place, I think, as a servant, at least that I found helpful is mindfulness, meditation, prayer, just time to get my thoughts together for the day ahead. And I typically don't take a meeting until after eight central time. Because that time is for me. (laughs) And after that, it could be a variety of things. But I would say most days have me with probably anywhere from two to five client appointments between both businesses, a requisite amount of writing. I do a lot of writing. All the writing I do for my blog and for my podcast is pretty much me. I don't outsource writing just because those are my thoughts. And so I'll do a heavy amount of that on any given day. And then I spend time in my communities. So whether that's responding to an email or creating a video response to a client about something, setting up the next meeting, or if that's a person I'm consulting with or advising or mentoring, I'm in answering their questions and, and things of that nature. So I'm very boots on the ground from what you may see from a typical advisor. And there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people, I remember I worked for a, a firm before I started mine for six years. And literally the owner of the firm was back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings, literally from the time he came in to the time he left. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not the life I wanted to create when I I started my business. So you have a little bit more liberty to structure days if you're self-employed like myself. If you're working for somebody, it may be a little bit more constraints. So you mentioned Jumpstart, the coaching lab that you started. As I mentioned in the introduction, it's working, you are working with your clients to change the face of the financial services industry by equipping the financial professional of tomorrow to serve their ideal clientele. What does that look like in practice? Let me give this illustration to kind of set up my answer. I think, I don't know how long ago I saw this, but it really resonated with me. And I think it was Tyler Perry that was at an awards show. And somebody was asking him about whatever, but he, he made this statement that I've stolen from him, which is when you get to a point of success in your life or a, a point of arrival, if you will, your job is to hold the door open for the next person. And I strongly believe that. And so I thought, man, I can build this big firm, definitely got the acumen and all the credentials and stuff to do that. But at the end of the day, it's going to be finite. I'm going to pass on or I'm only going to serve so many clients really because I can't serve everybody. But what if I took 20 years in counting and started to take that knowledge, break it up into bite-sized pieces for people that wanted to enter this industry and that aspiring financial professional or existing financial professional goes and serves that client set of clients, people they're called to at a greater capacity. To me, that's a better impact, bigger impact. So all that said, I think that 
part of my job is not just day-to-day advisor. It's also teacher. It's giving a little bit away of what I have, which I feel is kind of like an endless reservoir at this point of, of knowledge so that that next generation financial professional can thrive. So Jumpstart has been a, a collection of a lot of things. I've, I've iterated on this. It's, it's my baby. It's only three years old, barely three years old. And so the gist is, how do I take and templatize some frameworks around what I think financial services should look like? I've had clients tell me that they believe working with me has added years to their life because they're not as stressed and all kinds of things that I do inside my business. So I think I know what I'm doing. It's not to brag, but I think I know what I'm doing. And so I, I want to share that because I think that's going to be instrumental in a couple of things. Us changing this industry from people, people saying financial advisor at a dinner party and basically clearing the room because somebody thinks they're going to try to sell them something that they don't need to people saying, oh, I would like to have one of those. I didn't even know that's what they did. That's what we're trying to do. And who is your ideal client? Are these young grads? Are these people who are farther along in their careers? Jumpstart has spanned the gamut. I remember a couple of early coaching calls when I had some freshmen in college on those coaching calls, all the way to one of my masterclass clients is 56. So I get the gamut, but I would say my ideal person is probably that career changer. So they've done something for a little while and they've said, I don't feel like this is my highest and best use. I'm looking for my highest and best use. And I think that's financial services. And so those people tend to come with a transferable skill set that with a little work, if they're not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get a little dirt in their fingernails, the transfers pretty well into financial services. There's a lot of people in financial services doing this as a second third or encore career. And I tend to serve those people best. So I'd like to flash back really quickly, Dom, to when you were in college. You went to Prairie View A&M in Texas. Yeah. And you majored in finance. Yep. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? In 1998, when I graduated, if you told me in 2021, I'd be sitting here talking to you on a podcast interview. Absolutely not. No, not to that grand granularity. But I did know that I wanted to see myself in the financial services industry making an impact. Didn't know what that looked like. We barely, barely had the internet when I graduated. I mean, we were still Netscape and Alta Vista researching library projects, right? It wasn't nothing like it was today. I guess... One of the things I've always been, and I don't know if this this is probably because of my upbringing, my my dad, 22 years in the military, I'm the oldest of three. I got the brunt of those military every three or four years trying to find a new set. And so this became my stability. The discipline of what financial services meant in my life early was one thing. And I don't know why I gravitated to that. I mean, I, I was a big Monopoly fan. I mean, me and my cousin used to play these games, Monopoly tournaments, really where we just leave the pieces on there for days on end because we hadn't finished the game. So this has been with me a while. And I think that was the thing that I could kind of hold on to and be stable when you're finding a new set of friends every three or four years or something like that. So all that to say, great question. I think that I knew I wanted to make an impact in this industry, but I just didn't know how it was going to happen. So what was your first job and how did you get it? First job was, (laughs) well, I had, Two first jobs. So, short story when I graduated, May 98, a month after, not a month after, my wife's father passed suddenly. And so, 
we purview is very near Houston, and that's where all my job prospects were. However, her family was in Dallas, and it just didn't make sense to come back to Houston with her recently widowed mom. It just, it just didn't feel right. So we stayed in Dallas. Well, my job prospects went out the window, right? So at that time, it wasn't like a tough market or anything. Matter of fact, I, I think I, I, I did something with a temp agency that had me working at Mary Kay in the headquarters right off the tollway here in Dallas for about six months. And serendipitously enough, the first hedge fund, who I knew the founder, Harlan B. Corvey, is a very great, great family. We're moving from Fort Worth to Dallas, and they were hiring like the Dickens. Because if you know what was going on between 90, let's call it 97 and 99, the Asian currency crisis, that business was just blowing up. So they needed a lot of people. And I was one of those hires in September of 98. And I stayed there until 2006. So it was a lot of great relationships and you know, learning that went on in, in that period of time. So the name of that company, actually the acronym, I don't know if it's an acronym or it's just the initials, HBK Mm -hmm. Investments. When you left there after the eight years you spent, you were an operations manager. Yes. Yeah. You then pivoted into real estate. Working (laughs) for- Yeah. I probably watched too much flip that house way back in the day. Oh, is that what it was? It was it was popular during that time. Flip that house, Armando and all those different people. And I thought I could do that. But if, if you look at the timing, the chronological timing of that, 2005 is when the housing crisis started to get out of control. 2006, it was all these reports. By the time we hit fall of 2007, we were in market free fall pretty much. All of 2008, the markets fell. And so my timing was off. <laughs> say the least. (laughs) But I learned some good lessons. That was my first reset button. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So I was going to say the company that you went to work for, it was called Covenant Investments. It was in the commercial. That was mine. That was my first sole proprietorship, first crack at being my own boss. What I tell a lot of my mentees and people that I consult with now is that want to strike out on their own. I go, there's a couple of questions you need to ask yourself because just because you're affluent and or you have this acumen around financial services knowledge does not mean you're a good business owner. Those are two different skill sets. So Covenant Investments was your company, Dama. Yes. I did not get that. Yes. And this was commercial real estate investments? Is that Commercial and, real, uh, and residential. Mostly okay. residential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So clearly... Timing was off. You then moved to Lone Star Financial Partners as a financial advisors, excuse me, advisor. Mm -hmm. And I guess you stayed there. Yeah. So there's an interesting story here. So that was my going back to my first love of financial services, right? Just like really, real estate things not happening. And this was where I met one of my, my good friends in the industry. And basically, this is where I did, and everybody that goes down this path will know about this. I have to get my life in health. I had to pass my Series 7. They didn't have the SIE back then in my Series 66. And so I was given 90 days to do that. Nowadays, I think people are given like six or nine months or something. But one story of failure here is I, I passed my life in health, which is a relatively easy exam. The Series 7 is actually a, a pretty difficult exam. I think the the pride of how well I did on that exam set me up for failure because I, I failed the 66 by one point and I had to wait 30 days and all this other kind of stuff happened. And I was, I was just so flustered. But, but what it taught me is that you don't ever want to stop your hard work. That was the lesson that I, I took out of that. 
And failure is not final. I know that a lot of people have said that a certain different ways. There's going to be those exams that you really think you need to take or you really need to pass. And you know, I have one of my good buddies who's a PhD now and, and teaches this stuff. He, he passed or he, he didn't pass his CFP until the third try. And so there's a lesson in failure in that it's not final unless you let it be. <laughs> you can definitely give up. You can definitely quit. But failure is not final unless you quit. So end up passing that, wait 30 days, and then you end up passing that. And so the, the story with Lone Star, bringing this in for landing, is they, they went out of business. So I, I'm left with clients that I've been working up for these 18 months or so. And like, I didn't have nowhere to put them. So like, there was another almost like reset button that I had to hit. And I tell my, I tell this story to my audience a lot because a lot of people are looking for quick hacks or what's the shortcut and all this stuff. And, and the deal is, is it's, it's still not going to be a substitute for hard work. There's no easy way around. It's not a linear path. Even you looking at somebody like me, you're like, oh, he's you know, doing all this stuff. But like, I've had my down, my down, my downfalls and stuff. So I think that's that's good. It builds character if you don't, again, if you don't quit and if you don't allow it to break you. Beautiful. And actually what I tell my audience is similar to that, Dom, and that is that finding your purpose in your professional life, and frankly, I've had several. I don't mm. think you can, you necessarily just have one, Yeah, is not like following a recipe mm. where you just get your ingredients, you throw it in a pan mix it up, and there is your perfect career. It's more like being a mad scientist in a lab with those goofy big glasses, your beaker on a Bunsen burner, your little test tubes, and you're throwing shit in the test tubes and some of it may blow up in your face, yeah. right? Like we've both had that experience. We've tried things that didn't work. Boom, it was a little explosion. But the truth is, just like that mad scientist, the way that you find your purpose and passion is by doing. In fact, that is the only way that you find it. You have to test, you have to experiment and iterate yeah. and zig and zag. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I, I tell people there's no, there's no shortcut to success. Everybody you see that's been a overnight success, they've been doing something that you you haven't seen. They've been putting in their reps. So I, I think is this it's it's really not being afraid of that. There's the quote that courage isn't the absence of fear; it's just you standing there in the face of fear. So I, I think one of the things that people need to to take away, hopefully from this conversation, many things they can take away, but one of those is as long as you don't give up, as long as you don't quit, and just keep at it. You're going to find that purpose. You're going to find your call. It's, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Beautiful. So just very quickly, I'm going to hop over a couple of stops in your yeah. professional journey. You moved from commercial real estate, as we said, to the Lone Star Financial Partners, which ended up going out of business. You then moved to the McGowan Group Asset yeah. Management as a client portfolio manager. That sounds awfully similar. Mm -hmm. to what you're doing now. And you stayed there for six years, after which you decided to do it again, to start your own firm, which is reset what button. you're doing now. I'm sorry? <laughs> no, you got to hit that reset button. I hit it again. So, <laughs> Dom, what is the best financial advice that you can offer our young listeners 
Mm. Those who may not want to go into financial services, how can they get off on the right financial foot while they're still in school and then post-grad? Two principles, very, very, very old principles. I mean, even going back to biblical times, but a more popular read might be Richest Man in Babylon, George Clayson, I believe. So, And if you take away all the stuff that's out of that book, and I give you just a couple of nuggets, the first is live beneath your means. I think he his his proverbs are like to save 10%. That's probably where it starts. That's a bare minimum. So live beneath your means and invest, start investing early. Sir John Templeton has a saying, I don't know if it's a direct quote, but it's it's connotated as it's not market timing, but time in the market. So, right, as long as you can have these doubling periods, little simple math, rule of 72 or rule of 70, take your return, divide it into 70. That's how quickly your money doubles. So you figure a 10% return, which is the stock market has averaged for the last 100 years or so. Your money doubles every seven years, right? So the same 65-year-old and 25-year-old are getting the same return. (laughs) But the 65-year-old doesn't have as many doubles left as the 25-year-old. So starting early is a big thing. And you can make up so much ground by just starting early. So live beneath your means, start investing. What is an unexpected piece of advice, Dom, that you could offer those of our young listeners who may be struggling with their finances right now? Clearly, so many of our young people are dealing with massive school debt. They may have a car loan on top of it. What? unexpected piece of advice would you offer them? This is going to be maybe out of left field and somewhat controversial, but as I kind of look, so context is I've been married 24 years. I have three adult children, the youngest of 19, the middle boy, 22. I would say the the traditional go to college, get a job may not be right for you. You might want to think about that coming out of high school or even in your first year of college, I don't know how many of them allow you to go undeclared or undecided anymore or liberal arts, but maybe even two years of associates or your junior college as you kind of decide what do you want to do. Because, you know, you think about the fact that I think I did my whole college career. I was under, uh, I had a full scholarship, but I think the all-in cost was under 20 grand for all four years, somewhere around there. And that's a historically black college and university. So it's state, school, not this big tuition and all that kind of stuff. I've sent my children there for a couple of semesters and it's $25,000 a year. So 98, 2020, <laughs> you know, you can do the math. It's 22 years. That is incredible rate of inflation. And you figure the stock market's doubling, it, all the stuff I just said, 10%. That's almost, that's almost a, uh, the rate of inflation that the stock market's getting. So all this to say, education is expensive. And you can't really afford to make too many wrong turns in, in regards to, oh, I'm changing my major to this, I'm changing my major to that, and you're taking out loans. But I mean, next thing you know, you're going to be six figures in debt and you haven't even started a job yet. So I think choose wisely would be my, my, my uh, advice there. What is the biggest financial mistake that you see young people make the most? Oh, by far, it's related to the last two. It's living be- beyond their means. So typically the way you make up for being in debt is to tighten your belt or sacrifice once you have that awakening moment or start making more money, but don't up your lifestyle with your increase. It's just math. So when you start thinking about, 
money mistakes, they really all boil down to you overspending. Yeah, I can't <laughs> disagree with that. <laughs> Two final T for C questions, Dom. You've already given us one case where you struggled in your professional life. You can either expand on that or perhaps there's another one. The most important purpose of this story is not the failure, but how you persevered, how you kept pushing forward, and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, yeah, I'll be transparent. I've talked about this before. So one of the reasons that that I had to hit reset the second time is that Covenant Investments, my business, and I didn't know this, this is the stuff I didn't know, but that sole proprietorship was tied to my social. And long story short, you know, during the housing crisis, I got into too much debt, da, 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 da. my credit score was trash. It, it, it tanked. And we had a couple of our rental properties foreclosed on and all this other kind of stuff. So one of the hardest things for me that I had to get over was I'm this financial advisor. I'm this financial guru that hasn't done things perfect. Like, like I've had bad credit scores. I've had all this stuff. And like, how can I tell people what they need to do with their finances? So that was a mental hurdle that I had to get over with because there's nowhere written that says you had to do something in order to be able to tell people how not to act or how to act. There's nowhere written that. I get the whole t-shirts have been there, done that. But to be honest, that's not how, that's not how life works all the time. And so if we, if we can only take advice from people that been there, done that, we would have a lack of counsel in our lives because that's not how life works. And I think under overcoming that mental hurdle taught me a lot of things about myself. And I think the takeaway for your audience is the fact that sometimes the loudest voice in our head is our own. And we might be telling ourselves the wrong thing. Like sometimes you have to replay what you're saying and you have to change that talk track. You got to change it to something different. And so if you're telling yourself, you know, maybe, you know, I'll take, I'll, I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit. Maybe somebody has planted that. Maybe it was a parent or somebody you loved or something planted that negative voice inside your head that you need to turn off and you need to replace the track and move forward. How did you do that? Oh man, so many people in my life, my wife, my best friend, she's, she's poured into me a lot of positive I'm still lucky enough to have my parents around. So my, my mom has been really, really instrumental as a spiritual guide and leader. But beyond that, beyond the you know, relationships, because I'm big about community and relationships, just surrounding myself around different sets of people, what I'm putting into myself, I'm a big proponent also of you can't really expect different results doing different things or, or doing the same thing. So like, what books are you reading? What music are you listening to? Who are you hanging out with? That's going to kind of dictate your results for the most part. So if you change that stuff up drastically, you should expect drastic results. And most people want drastic results. They just don't want to do the changes. Amazing advice. Final question, Dom. If you could go back to school, go back to Prairie View A&M and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, mm. what advice would you give yourself? Wow. I would probably take in the moments, smell the roses a little bit more. I have been a relatively driven person with a lack of balance. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm better now at 45. But the, the point is, is I, I, I would tell my younger 18-year-old through 22-year-old self to, 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 to relax, right? You're going to be okay. 
but you don't have to cross every T, dot every, dot every little I. Enjoy the moments a little bit more. Dominic is a coach. He is a teacher. He is a guide. He is the founder of the Jumpstart Coaching Lab, and he is also the host of the wonderful podcast, Conversations for Financial Professionals. Dom, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.